Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution by talking with executives and thought leaders who are changing how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Sean Amirati, who's a professor at Carnegie Mellon University and a venture capitalist. He's been a serial entrepreneur. He has uh, an author, and he also recently started his own podcast. So, Sean, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Bob. Yeah, and everybody, Sean is now one of our digital all-stars. He'll be appearing monthly. And the special theme that we're going to be able to discuss with Sean on these monthly programs is going to be Amirati on innovation. Because from Sean's role, which I'm going to ask him to talk about a little bit more here in just a second, at CMU, sort of in the corporate startup lab side of things, and then as a VC working with a lot of young companies and Sean's own interests and mindset, always looking for new openings and opportunities and innovation. It's just a great subject. We're very happy to have you be part of our monthly digital all-star series. So uh, Sean, tell us a little bit about your background here at CMU and what you're working on there and at the, at the VC firm you're with now. And I, I just want to help set this up a little bit as why Amirati on innovation is perfect given you, know, you and your background and the big organizations you're affiliated with. Awesome. Thanks, Bob. So, yes, as you said, I'm a partner at a seed stage venture capital firm with offices here in Pittsburgh, as well as in San Francisco called Birchmere Ventures. Birchmere is, uh, you know, like a lot of early stage VC firms, we write 500 to three quarter million dollar checks, kind of typically that first institutional financing. I've been doing that for about six years. and about seven years, I've been adjunct faculty at Carnegie Mellon. Before that, I started and sold three startups, but the, the book that you mentioned, Science of Growth, when that came out, I started spending a bunch more time with corporates who were looking to adopt the things that were in my book, which were basically lessons from startups that many people in your audience would be familiar with, Dropbox, Tesla, Facebook, and looking at how those early companies were started. And a lot of companies were reaching out and saying, hey, we'd love to apply the same thinking inside our large company, you know, a big industrial company like Abash or uh, uh, Alcoa. And, and so as I started spending time with those executives, I realized that as fun as Birchmere Ventures is and continues to be, and as fun as working with graduate students at Carnegie Mellon is, I had inadvertently been part of a group of people, I think, who had relegated entrepreneurship to just 20-somethings in skinny jeans and t-shirts. And it's not that like, it's not that 20-somethings shouldn't be doing innovation and entrepreneurship. They absolutely should. But the problem is, when you think about what entrepreneurship is, at a macro level, entrepreneurship is really the group of people who look at emerging technologies and say, I'm going to apply these technologies to make the world different and from their perspective better. And the problem is when the only people who are figuring out how to make the world better are people in their mid-20s, they lack a little perspective on all the different ways that the world needs to be. I know I certainly did in, in my 20s. And so I started thinking about like, well, how can we help, you know, middle managers in an industrial company like the Bosch Corporation be entrepreneurial, even though they may be at a different, you know, risk adjusted kind of point in their career. They may have expenses that don't allow them to do exactly the same thing that that um, a traditional entrepreneur would be able to do in terms of jumping off, going through an accelerator or whatever. And so we started the Corporate Startup Lab really to look at that. And that launch is part of the Schwartz Center uh, that Bob, you are my friend, Dave Mawinney runs at Carnegie Mellon. And, and the, the, within the Schwartz Center, it's really focused on, okay, how can we help a large company 
uh, do the same things that kind of create the future in the same way that entrepreneurs do it, but just with the funding and the, the infrastructure coming from the company, not coming from the startup. And over the last couple of years, uh, that, that project has really taken on a life of its own at CMU. Sean, that, it's, a, it's a great story. And I tell you, you know, one of the, the points you made there about the innovation being centered there, and as you try to interconnect these two worlds that yeah. you described in some ways, the corporate world and the startup yeah. world, I think it was from IBM that I first heard this idea uh, three, four years ago, where they talked about the power of incumbency. Yep. And if a, these big industrial companies or big technology companies are able to find a way to take the mass and what they have been, the accumulated knowledge, the client contacts, the vertical market expertise, their technical expertise, and pair that up, that encompassy with innovation in ways that nobody can match, then they kind of get the best of both that's worlds, right? right? That's, a, that's exactly right. And, and, and what, what's been interesting is that been, as we've been working with these companies, right, we've seen them lever exactly that. So, uh, you know, I was talking to my partners at Birchmere about an idea that we're working, that my students at Carnegie Mellon were working with PNC Bank, which is a, a large regional bank here in Pittsburgh. Uh, and PNC Bank has this, this built a whole infrastructure around this sort of advantage of an incumbency called NUMO, N-U-M-O. And we were working with them on one of their first ideas. And I was telling my partners, Sean and Ned, about the idea. And they were like, wow, that's awesome. That's like exactly the kind of thing that we would invest in. And I said, that's right. But the first thing that a startup would need to do to do that idea would actually be go get a bank charter, right? <laughs> Which would cost millions of dollars. And we as a VC fund would never ever finance that. Like that's just not what we're in the business of doing. I was like, the great thing about PNC is it turns out they've already got one of those and pretty good relationships <laughs> with those regulators, right? So, so PNC has real advantages relative to a FinTech startup. They've other challenges and they need to figure out how to deal with those challenges. But, but to me, when you, can, when you can take the assets and the infrastructure, the customer relationships that a large company has and apply it against this vision of the future, really magical things can happen. I actually think there are certain startups that just make more sense to be started inside a company. And today they're not being started because that we just don't have the processes and tools to do it. And to me, like, that's a, that's a, that's a world problem. Like we need as many of these innovations to be commercialized as possible. Well, Sean, you know, that's a, that's a great lead in for, I think what we're going to talk about some yes. today, which is you had brought up this notion of, you know, with the Lyft having uh, published recently or released its S1 statement for its yeah. forthcoming IPO. There's some interesting stuff in there. And Sean, as you get to that and some of what you were talking about with PNC and the advantages it has uh, in knowing things, it's got a bank charter, it's got customers, it knows okay. how to do stuff. It's got a pretty good governance situation in place. So it has those, it's looking for that other spark. Of how do I do things in a way that takes the best ideas out of that without being saddled by some of the things that big companies inevitably do. I thought an interesting uh, pairing that goes into this whole mobility space that we're gonna talk about with Lyft here was um, fairly recently, it was Daimler-Benz and BMW, you know, two yep. traditional big physical world companies that would, you know, claw each other's eyes out before they'd ever think about doing something together in their traditional business, but have recently formed a joint venture to help accelerate their move into the mobility space. So That's right. the, it's, it's a ways in which not just the technology changes, but the business models change and the competitive dynamics change in ways that 
completely unexpected. So it really is that, uh, that whole new world that you're getting into there in, in some of these uh, ways that business models work, corporate structures, org structures, who's your partner, who's your enemy, who's your ally? A hundred percent. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, you know, as, as you mentioned, we're going to dive into the Lyft S1 today. And, I, you know, I'm kind of a geek this way, but I love reading the S1s of these high-tech companies when they come out. I remember a couple of years ago when Box's S1 came out and I, I, it literally came out a, or it became public uh, a couple hours before the night at CMU I was going to talk about SaaS as a business model. And we just threw the lecture out and just spent the whole night in the S1, right? Like there's just, there's a ton in these. And I think, um, I think as it relates to kind of future mobility and those trends, like there's a lot of insight that I would encourage, you know, a lot of these executives, I was with some, some folks this, this week at another large automotive company said, Hey, like you guys really need to sit down and actually read through that, understand the perspective of these new, these new players in the space. Um, so I think there's a lot in there. I think, one of the things that we want to talk about a little bit was specifically how it related to the cloud because there's it's yeah. it's really interesting how lyft is talking about the cloud and their partnership with amazon but there's just there's so much in there how they think about growth versus profit how they think about who their customers are how they think about mobility and the, and the changes um that all these cities are going through there's just a lot for people and i think many executives don't realize how valuable it is to sit and just you know pour yourself a cup of coffee and 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 pour through it you know yeah, yeah. So, Sean, um, you've clearly looked at this pretty closely. Um, there's, you know, I agree with you. These, these things are, are fascinating reading, especially for these high-profile companies that are not just creating a new industry, but they're they're changing the ways that I think it's the world's largest automaker, Volkswagen AG, just said we're going to turn from being an automaker into a mobility services company. That's this, right. It's not it's not uh, playing out on the fringes. They are disrupting and turning long established industries from top to bottom, uh, turning them upside down in ways that just a couple of years ago is unimaginable, unfathomable. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, and yeah, go ahead, Bob. Sorry. What, what struck you in the S1, Sean? What, what, what are a couple of things that jumped out at you? Well, a lot, but the thing I thought that would be really relevant for your audience is specifically how Lyft describes their partnership with Amazon, right? And specifically not the Amazon, like the e-commerce part of Amazon, but the other part of Amazon, the AWS and the, the whole sort of cloud infrastructure. And specifically, the fact that they're on the hook for $8 million a month to AWS, whether they use all the compute cycles that they've, that they've pre-purchased or not. And so um, a couple of people ended up doing the analysis. That works out to like 14 cents a ride for, uh, for you know, Lyft paying Amazon every time they ride it. And that, to me, that opens up a bunch of interesting things because you can look at that number and think like, wow, that it, it's a very different, you know, it's a very different expense profile than maybe if they had tried to do it on-prem or they tried to do it through, you know, using data centers or, or whatever their approach was, um, both kind of how they got here. And, and, and then I think there's some, there's some other, uh, there's some other lessons about sort of where they are today and maybe where they're heading. And then I think also how, how it impacts kind of the Amazon side of the equation, right? So maybe we start with this, this first part of it, like how AWS, and in this case, but really any cloud provider has allowed Lyft to get to the point that they are today. You know, I think when, I, I imagine a lot of the people who listen to your, um, to this podcast, you know, many of them 
start where they have legacy infrastructure that they're that's like part of what they're saddled with right and then the question becomes how do i do i think they call it hybrid crowd cloud where it's sort of like on-prem plus plus cloud right but but lyft i think really to me illustrates a really interesting point which is that for companies who start day zero on the cloud right they're able to make this a per use expense instead of a capitalized expense I know when I, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading through that numbers and just sort of, you know, thinking about, wow, $8 million a month or 14 cents a ride. I was thinking back to um, earlier in my career, I ran a company called Emspoke, which ultimately we sold to LinkedIn. And we started right before AWS was like a real option for startups to build these types of AI systems. It was kind of AI before AI was as popular as it is today. And so we actually went and, and rented racks in two different data centers. We bought servers from Dell and Sun Microsystems and, mm -hmm. and racked and stacked them. And, and I think the bill was hundreds of thousands of dollars before we put our first customer on that product, before we processed our first content item. When we sold that business to LinkedIn, we had sold all those servers for pennies on the dollar. <laughs> And we had a $500 a month credit card bill, right? And so when you think about cloud, it's, I think it's really easy to get caught up on the technical aspects of it. But I mean, that's a complete change in what's possible and what's not possible from a business model perspective. And I think, you know, Amazon is the specific vendor of record in this case that we're talking about. Uh, and I think in a minute, it's worth talking about that vendor of record specifically, because I think there's some interesting mm -hmm. things there as well. But, but before we get to that, just generalizing, Think how Lyft got to where they are today because every time they needed just a little bit more compute, they could just slightly increment the, the per month expense instead of having to go through the, the years of, you know, capitalizing it, hiring, you know, hiring people to run the data centers, all that. And so to me, like Lyft is a really interesting example because it is a mobility first company that was not started with the legacy infrastructure that a lot of those companies that, that we were talking about earlier had. And I think it's just a great um, general perspective on how cloud enables innovation. Sean, you know, that, that, that is a remarkable set of numbers there and the, the dynamics that unfold between, you know, what's possible for startups today versus not that many years ago. Were you surprised at that 14 cents a ride number? I was. I mean, so certainly you look at companies like a Netflix or a Dropbox, right? And you expect their AWS bill to get so large because they're basically, you know, they're, they're pushing media files around. And so you expect them to eventually get to an expense level where they even may need to think about a, um, you know, moving from a third party cloud provider to some combination of custom hardware plus theirs. You know, I, I at least from my perspective, I wasn't I would not have expected, you know, this, mo this sort of future of mobility and, you know, at the edge computing that, that a company like Lyft is doing to run up those types of bills personally. Like I thought that I was, it felt higher than I would have guessed. Um, but I think the cool thing about it was it wasn't like zero to whatever the cost would be to get those servers, right? It, it grew, it grew with it. And my guess is, and as you read through other parts of the S1 where they talk about growth versus profitability, for example, which is something I would encourage any automator 
automotive maker to like actually spend some time thinking about because I think it's a different point of view. And um, but as, it, as you think about that, right? My guess is that there were times along the way where it was like, well, you know, if we did it internally, maybe we could get this for twelve cents a ride instead of fourteen cents a ride. But is it really worth the distraction of our senior executives, the distraction of our IT team, and the fact that we would have to hire and to keep bring this internal versus you know allowing to continue to partner with a with a company like Amazon for this? Yeah, and Sean, you know, one thing I wanted to ask as a follow up on that, um, I was talking uh, the other day to somebody who's he had attended the uh, AWS's recent reinvent yeah. conference. And he said, of all the cool things that went on there, one of the things that really struck him was when Andy Jassy's doing his keynote and he starts laying out or describing some of the new services that AWS is offering. Right. He said, at first it filled, you know, in one of the biggest indoor screens in, in the country, it filled up one uh, indoor arenas in the country. It filled up one screen on stage, then a second, then a third one. And this guy's live. He said, by the end, it was like a panoramic thing, you know, 500,000 uh, feet across, he said, it seemed like. And he said, this is just the new services they're coming out with, not the yeah. ones that they had before. So to your point about, can I take this from 14 cents a ride to 12 cents a ride by bringing some or all of this internal? Do you, as you say, you face the distraction, but also can you do all those other things that some of these hyperscalers are doing? Um, so it, it's intriguing that you raise this notion and then it comes back to your point there of, uh, profitability or in this case in some ways cost versus growth you know right and and how these dynamics in this new emerging world are going to be very different uh, right a hundred percent and I, and I think I think as Amazon democratizes a lot of things that felt like deep science and computer science before like it's going to make this it's going to make this conversation even more interesting right as and it's not again it's not just Amazon all of these large cloud providers you're watching them push into AI and things that just a couple of years ago, you know, I would have walked through the halls of Gates Hillman and it would have been like one professor tweaking a neural net in a certain way. And now you've got, you know, <laughs> Google Cloud's got a version of it and Microsoft Cloud's got a version of it and Amazon Cloud's got a version. Like, it, it's just, it's, it's really amazing. Um, and I think it's, uh, to me, it's part of what makes it really, really fun to be in technology today. Because when you, when you sort of democratize that by pushing that out to, to just services you can spin up, it allows people to really think about, okay, don't worry about the how, just worry about like what people care about, what the customers want and how you can delight them. And man, I mean, that's, that's a fun place to be in the ecosystem these days. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, you know, uh, your, your, your point there about uh, how quickly things have changed, even at, you know, one of the world's top computer science schools like Carnegie Mellon and the number of people now involved in AI, machine learning, deep learning, yeah. research and all. Um, I was struck, uh, say it was within the last couple of weeks, um, when Salesforce did its Q4 earnings call, Mark Benioff said at one point, he was talking about AI, he said, half the homes in America now have voice activated AI within yeah. the home. So that, you know, say it's a quarter of the homes in America, I mean, this is still incredible, but those numbers, even if he's you know, within 50% of, you know, the actual number, that, that, that's astonishing. It, it, it really is. It really is. It's just, it's a, it's a fun time to be in the space. You know, I, I mean, you, you know, Bob, because you heard the narratives over the years when I was doing M Spoken Peak, which were kind of AI startups before AI startups were, were popular. I, I feel like for years, I just kept saying like, you know, this future where AI changes every industry is coming, it's coming. And 
the good thing is if you say that for like 20 years, <laughs> eventually you're right. Like, like you may be too early, too early, too early, but eventually you're right. And it does, but man, it does feel like now is the time. And it's just, it's magical what you can do because, because of this and people's comfort level with it as well. Like, yeah. you know, my wife who, who's amazing, but not technical at all. She's talking to me a couple of weeks ago and she goes, well, isn't that like the Google algorithm? I was like, I can't, I can't believe that. And I don't think that's because we're married. I think that's just generally like this has just become the, the language of, of uh, the whole world today. It's, it's really amazing. I, I do think, I, I know you had a post on Cloud Wars I saw about uh, Mark coming on that. I do think there was some spin in pieces of yeah. that as he, was, as he was weaving a story, which um, as a fellow, no way. Right, as a fellow <laughs> entrepreneur, I have nothing but respect for, for how he has the capacity to do that. But, um, but like a lot of those things, there's, there's truth in there as well that I think is, is really compelling, so. Yeah, Sean, one thing since, you know, we're talking about speed and timetables, um, your point about, you know, you keep saying this is gonna be the year of AI in business. Yeah. You said for 20 years, it's gotta come true. That's, you've always been, I think, jealous of me in my fashion sense and my- <laughs> That's right. Hey, that was a little too much laughter. No, 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 Sean, no, no. That, there, was but... that was me violently <laughs> agreeing with you about, for sure, for sure. But, my my policy on that is he said if you wear the same stuff long enough it, it's mostly out of style but every seven to ten years it'll come back in style so um yeah these time skills depending on your appetite for abuse and so on along the way you know they're, they're okay you can deal with this so sean um talk a little bit about uh what's the mindset right between the two worlds that are so similar in some ways but so different that you operate in on this subject of innovation, right, the, the, the late teens or 20-somethings at CMU and the uh, more seasoned professionals you deal with in the corporate startup lab, how are those two sets of individuals, how are they looking at innovation? And what does it mean to them? And what is that? How do you feel that? Are you optimistic? Are you concerned about where this stuff is headed? Tell us about the mindsets there. Yeah, so, so I think there, there are parts of the mindset that are shockingly similar, right? So great innovators in both of those worlds need to be obsessed with their customers, right? And I think, I think that's actually true for anybody trying to do digital transformation, which is what I imagine a lot of your audience is focused on as well. If you're not obsessed with your customers, like it just doesn't work. Then there are some ways I think where they are different. And, and a lot of what we do in the corporate startup lab is actually try to get um, those you know, more seasoned executives to feel like they have permission to actually go and do this type of innovation. And there's some cultural role issues that need to be worked through to make that happen. I think we need to talk about how you think about failure inside each of those worlds and distinguish two different types of failure, right? Because there's failure, meaning you have an idea, you set out to do it, and that idea just ends up being incorrect and you figure out that idea is incorrect and you kill the idea, right? We, we would use the word failure to describe that. And as a venture capitalist in a startup board, we would call that a success, right? You efficiently and capital effectively ran a process to see if an idea was a good one or not. And you figured out it was a bad idea. And our last conversation with you is probably something like, hey, you know, make sure whatever you do next, you tell us about it so we can talk about funding that, right? That's to me like a good kind of failure, but I really mean that type of failure. There's another type of failure, right? Which is you do the wrong thing. Like, you know, you don't talk to customers. You sit in your office and you try to figure out what you're gonna do without talking to customers. That kind of failure is a terrible thing. 
And frankly, like we wouldn't be as excited to work with those entrepreneurs again. I think in the corporate world, what we see a lot is that they use the term failure to describe both of those things. And we need to help both the executives and the people doing the work delineate between those two things. Um, but I will say where I am today versus I think even a few years ago, there are way more companies talking about this today, talking about this topic of, of how do we leverage the assets we have? How do we create the future inside IBM instead of having somebody else from the outside, you know, create the future and, and creatively destroy, as the economists would say, our business. And I think that's great because I do believe there are certain businesses that are just better built inside those organizations. We just got to give them the right tools and frameworks to do, it, which has been, been a lot of uh, the focus of the corporate startup lab. And, and uh, it's been great so far. So, so maybe cautiously optimistic is the right, the right quick answer to your question. Okay. And Sean, I want to give you the last word for anything that, that you want to close with, but I would ask you to, um, you know, at least jump into that off of one point. One of the things that I saw in the uh, Lyft S1 was they showed quarter by quarter the number of active riders using yes. the service. And I saw that from, uh, and so on the broad topic of scale and speed, from Q2 of 18 to Q3 of 18, their number of active riders increased by 1.9 million. Yep. And then in the next, from Q3 to Q4, it went up by 1.2. So within six months, they gained over 3 million new customers. Right? So I, I, my question in some ways is, how do you advise corporate startups or in, you know, uh, more traditional types of startups? How do they incorporate in this digital world these ideas of speed and scale? Yeah, so I think, I think, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that, right? So there's, there's how you talk to your customers, there's how you pay attention to your customers, there's what's going on in the overall ecosystem. Um, as people listening certainly know, like, uh, the, the biggest competitor to uh, Lyft had a rough 2018, I would say, um, you know, and, and I think, you know, I'm optimistic that 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 ship is turning around and that, that 2019 is going to be a good year, but you can certainly look through and see, like, um, I think there was some, some brand challenges from their competitors and lifted a good job taking advantage of that, but they also had built the right type of management team, the right types of processes. They had teams focused on the right things, knowing their customers well enough that they could capitalize on that as it relates to technology specifically as well, right. They were able to, to, in a very elastic way to steal an Amazon term, they were able to kind of, scale up as necessary within within uh, that as that demand continued to peak right so people get frustrated with your competitor they quickly migrate from you know competitor to you you need to make sure that you can give them a remarkable first experience with your product one of the things that we see that I think has been well known in the traditional startup world for a long time and I think is increasingly um, being appreciated inside corporate startups is how important that first interaction with the product is and there's a lot of things that have, have done to, been done inside large companies to get better at that design thinking and focusing on the human computer interaction. But another part of it is the ability to actually, uh, you know, pay per, per cycle and, and scale up your infrastructure so that your, your interaction is not just frankly slow, which is frustrating for people. So I think Lyft was well positioned to take advantage of that because of some of the things they had done. Um, I do think it's interesting for, uh, for Lyft to think about as they go forward, like, do they continue to build on top of Amazon? Do they can, you know, as, as Amazon potentially becomes competitive in other ways, like it's a, it's a fascinating 
question for a company like that. I think it's a fascinating question for Lyft to think about, you know, do they do what it looks like from what I've been able to see publicly, what Uber has been doing, where they use Amazon for part of it, but, but scale up parts of their infrastructure internally with their own data centers and wholesale data centers as well. Um, it's it's going to be a fascinating to sort of see how all that plays out. Um, but I think certainly you saw last year that the agile nature of a company like Lyft being able to respond to these spikes in demand and, and really scale at unprecedented levels for this mature company. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's the, the type of problem, right, that a, a startup, uh, wherever it's coming from, wants to run into. You know, 100%. How, how do I get up that, that ladder as quickly as possible? Sean, thank you so much for this, uh, this, this great conversation and the, the first in our monthly series of Amirati on Innovation. Thanks, Bob. And thanks to all of you folks for joining us here. And uh, we'll be back with Sean again next month for another installment of Amirati on Innovation. Thanks very much for spending your time with us here at Cloud Wars. You can share your feedback with me at bobevanspa at gmail.com. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks again.